0: For all your fantasy football needs, check out the Ringer Fantasy Football Show with me, Danny Kelly, along with Danny Heifetz and Craig Horlbeck. That's the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote vs. the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com slash FYC. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown, as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations and secured 70 award wins, including Outstanding Drama Series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. It is Monday, September 25th. It happened last night. 7:23 p.m while craig was watching football and i was finalizing my sunday night puck newsletter the writers guild alerted its members that it had reached a tentative deal with the studios and streamers on a new three-year contract that paves the way for an end to the wga strike after 146 days second longest ever the guild still needs to ratify the deal which should take a couple weeks Don't forget the Actors Union, SAG-AFTRA. They are still on strike. Those negotiations should begin next week. And if all goes according to plan, production with actors can restart around Thanksgiving. That's the best case scenario. But it was a long road to this deal. And there were times this weekend where it kind of looked like it might fall apart. Despite the fact that four of the CEOs of the studios, Netflix, Warner Discovery, Disney, NBC Universal, they negotiated last week in person. so who won? That's kind of impossible to tell before we see the deal, which won't happen until the negotiating committee puts it in front of its members for a vote. But the Guild is using language like, quote, exceptional and meaningful gains. And I've talked to sources on both sides. The writers got broad protections against AI, though the studios kept certain rights to experiment. That was actually the last outstanding issue this weekend that they had to resolve. The writers also got certain levels of minimum staffing on TV shows based on the number of episodes, though not the guarantee that they wanted. They wanted higher levels of minimum staffing. And on the all-important transparency issue, the one that I've been talking about for years now, how much data the streamers have to cough up, it's still not clear how significant these gains actually were. There will be residuals and bonuses based on consumption. That's a big deal. The more a title is watched, the higher the residual. But what those bonus benchmarks are and how much access the Guild will actually have to that data, still not clear. We'll find that out soon. Still, even that gain is something the studios weren't offering on May 1st when the union decided to strike. So, was it all worth it? That's the question we're going to discuss today with Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg. The WGA strike is finally ending. Who can declare victory and what's next? From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg. Welcome, Lucas.
0: Great to be here. Our long local national global nightmare is is almost over.
1: Now, does this count as an emergency pod? I mean, the timing worked out so that we had a pod scheduled the next morning, so I don't think it's quite an emergency pod, but we're recording a little bit early.
0: I think it would have had to be last night to be emergency. Yes, we're taping at 7.30 in the morning on the West Coast, but you and I would have both been up anyways. You've been doing TV for six hours, so. Yeah,
1: it's like midday for me, so I'm fine with that. But uh,
0: all right, so let's get right into it. We have a
1: deal or a tentative deal. The writers and the studios announced last night. We have a little bit of the details, not a full detail accounting yet. And I think the devil will definitely be in the details of this agreement. But give me your impression of what the writers got in this deal and
0: what they didn't get. I think the writers got a lot of what they wanted. Now, as you know, delves in the details, let's get that out of the way. But we know that they got some kind of minimum staffing, which means there'll be a minimum or kind of a required number of writers to work on a given show, which was a big ask for them. And something that frankly, at the beginning, the studio sources, agents all the people in the industry said oh that's a non-starter that's not going to happen well they got some version of it not that became kind of a joke it's like really we're dying on the
1: hill of minimum
0: staffing why don't we
1: just let the showrunners decide this and i and i am told that this is not confirmed yet but i am told there is an element of that that the showrunner will have a big voice in what he or she wants on their show and it won't just be a mandatory,
0: you have to take these writers. Sort of a, the Mike White rule, if we want to use an example. And the number of writers will depend on the number of episodes and the season. And there are all, they're all sorts of circumstances, but they got some version of that. They also got some version of additional payment when a streaming show is successful. Because, you know, one of their big complaints was... Sure, we get paid more up front now in streaming, but there's no back end. We don't have a participation because these shows come and just live on these services forever. Now, my understanding is this is in sort of a bonus structure. So we're probably not going to see the huge back ends of like Friends or The Office or no. things like that. But it's still a circumstance where writers are going to get paid more if there's something that's successful. And oh, by the way, because this is done, it doesn't sound to me like there's going to be some pay cut up front, Right where in exchange for getting more payment in the end or in the back, they have to sacrifice at the beginning. If anything, they've fought for higher salaries, higher minimums, you know, higher residuals, higher all these things, because that tends to be what happens when unions negotiate a new deal. Yeah. And
1: keep in mind, these are the minimums. I mean, we are talking about residuals, which are the payments that studios make to creative people for the reuse of their work. And they're very complicated. They're very highly negotiated. And that's the floor, the base minimum that you can make. The people that you know, the Ryan Murphys, the Shonda Rhimes, they negotiate well above these guild minimums. But the fact that the base minimum now will include some kind of a success metric bonus is a pretty big deal. I just wonder, and I think this will be one of those detail points, I wonder how much transparency the studios actually agreed to here because they can do a bonus without opening up and telling the entire guild what the consumption data is and they can keep it very quiet. One of the proposals on the table was for only a couple people at the Writers Guild to know what the success metric and what the consumption data were so that they could come up with some kind of a residual formula. If that's what they agreed to, that's not really full transparency because the community won't know how these shows are doing. And I think that is what was needed here to create a more equitable playing field so that the talent knows exactly the worth, the value of the content. If the studios are still hoarding the data, but just saying, oh, yeah, this hit a benchmark, and now you get a residuals bonus. That's not quite transparency. We'll see where it is, but I would like to see some kind of a disclosure requirement.
0: That is the big question mark there, because as you note, in the proposal from August, I believe, the studios had said, we'll give the Guild quarterly viewership reports and it has to be limited to like six people. You can't share it with the broader membership. And to your point, they could create a, a bonus where it's like, okay, this show, cause it has to work across platforms, which you need to keep in mind, because otherwise it would just be Netflix is like the only streaming service that pays people right. bonuses. They
1: can't just say, oh, if you get to 100 million views, you get X, because if you're on Peacock, you ain't getting 100 million views.
0: So it'd be like, you know, let, if 10% of the subscribers to your plat, our platform watch it, we'll give you a bonus of X. If 20% will give you a bonus of Y. I wonder if they get to like completion rates or any of that. If they finish it, you get more? Probably not. Or do they factor in the cost of the show? Because that's also would be a factor in whether right. it's considered a success. My understanding, again, during the course of the negotiations in the past few days, is some of the more tech-focused companies were raising up a stink about how much transparency to give. Because the Guild wanted transparency for every show basically regularly. And companies like Amazon and Apple were like, we're, we're not doing that.
1: Yeah, in past agreements, they've done something where it's like high budget and low budget, where they distinguish based on the budgets of the shows. I mean, because obviously, if you are the creator of you know House of the Dragon, you know your show is going to get to a certain amount of views just because of the property and the budget of the show. And if you are the creator of a tiny talking-in-a-room drama, it's a much bigger hurdle.
0: I'd say the three of the biggest questions I have are, are still... What does the transparency look like? What is the back-to-work plan for writers? And what actually did they agree to on artificial intelligence?
1: Okay, so let's go. We're still in what they got and what they didn't get. So we've gone through transparency. We've gone through writers' rooms. Go into the AI question. What do they get and what did they want?
0: Well, they got guarantees that basically a, a human has to be credited as the author of the script, which is something that they had asked for previously. Even on Hallmark Christmas movies? even on Hallmark Christmas movies. (laughs) And so that means that even if a studio were to sort of surreptitiously use AI to generate an idea, they couldn't go to the writer and say, you're now adapting this AI idea. It would have to be, and that matters because you get paid less for an adaptation. What there was disagreement about was can studios use scripts, which they own, but obviously a writer wrote, to train large language models the writers did not want that to happen because they fear that that will enable these models to basically mimic their writing and let studios long-term replace them or reduce the number of writers in a room. And the studio's argument was basically, we own these things. They're getting scraped by these models anyways. Don't you want but someone to? That's the is- thing. It's like.
1: Uh, that That's a tough one for the studios, because you can't regulate the entirety of the business and technology world. And there are AI companies that are already doing this. I mean, we know authors are suing over this, but the studios essentially have put themselves, if they've agreed to this, at a disadvantage by agreeing not to use these scripts when everybody else can, or at least everybody else is.
0: Is there something, cause you brought up what they got, what they didn't get? Is there an area where you feel like the writer is clearly lost?
1: Well, there was an effort early on to get a clause that allowed them to keep striking when another guild is striking. And that was a non-starter. That that came out, I I am told it was it was a we're not even negotiating on this because they did not want to set the precedent that if you have are in an impasse with one guild you have all the others striking against you so the writers did not get that
0: so that means that even though the actors dispute is ongoing the writers will go back in the next once their deal is
1: ratified yeah now this week they're telling people oh please join the sag aftra picket lines in solidarity even though our issues are tentatively resolved but once they have a deal the writer's can't say, oh, well, SAG is still on strike, so I'm on strike. So that's the AI issue. Anything else that they got here that you think is significant?
0: The other aspects of it, I think were fairly known by this point, and it's it's up for debate how significant you think they are, how different they are from what others got, right? Like they got increases to minimum salaries, they got increases to residuals, both here and abroad. Those are meat and potatoes issues that are very important to the union they got some some money for their pension plan. I believe all that stuff matters. It's just not as significant to sort of the conflicts within the business right and that's
1: why this was called the Netflix strike from the beginning, which was because it was over the streaming model and the sense you know at least on social media where all the writers are cheering each other on at this point is that they at least feel good about that. We'll see it's hilarious the writers. We're so quick to dump all over the director's guild deal when that was signed because they thought that they shouldn't have done a deal when the writers were on strike. They hadn't seen that deal when they were dumping all over it. And now these same writers who crapped all over that deal are cheering their own deal without
0: having seen that one. Yeah. The other thing I forgot, that they addressed, and this is a little in the weeds, but it did matter to a lot of writers going into the strike, was they got some protections around mini rooms, which are these like rooms where studios would basically have a smaller group of writers try to break a story idea before the actual work on a show began. Um, and there were some guarantees about the number of people involved in that and how long that would last. So that practice will still continue, which is sort of a sign of compromise, right? Like the studios get to keep doing something that they've been doing that the writers get certain additional protections in those scenarios. And that's what I thought. I mean, that was the crazy thing about this dispute for so long is it felt like there was a need for like unequivocal victory.
1: Well, you go out on strike for almost 5 months, you're setting up your guild to expect certain things. But any deal requires compromise. True, but for a long time I don't think the I mean the you know, depends on who you're talking to, but For a long time, the writers were saying more, 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 and the studios were saying, no, we're not even going there on these things. So it took them, the CEOs actually being in the room, I think, and the fact that a lot of the showrunners on the writer's side were pretty adamant in pressuring the guild leadership that they wanted a deal soon. I think both of those factors played into the fact that we got a deal this weekend. Yeah, absolutely. That was an underreported element. There was there were a lot of showrunners and the upper levels. There was pressure people. on both sides. No, that's true. And I think the market and the fact that, you know, these CEOs were looking at their shareholders and their boards, like we have so many problems. Like, what are you guys doing? Why is this still an, why is it? Why is this a thing?
0: But I do think the writers did a very good job of maintaining the public appearance of solidarity, which I do think for the most part there was.
1: Well, yes. And yes and no. But the social media, I mean, we've both written about this. Nobody that had anything critical to say felt that they could say it publicly because they would be absolutely destroyed on social media. That yeah. is the big difference between past strikes and this strike. And it was very effectively wielded by the Writers Guild. And I think, frankly, that the studio side underestimated the use of those tools to galvanize the membership.
0: Well I think especially early on, there was a belief that the social media and what happened in the public space was noise, and that all that really mattered was what was happening in the negotiating room, which is true to an extent, but all these negotiations are predicated on sort of solidarity on the two sides, and the studios had been used to historically their writers and or whatever union they were on the other side from eventually breaking right because you have so many members with different needs and priorities and Studios can typically outlast a union because they make money in a bunch of different ways and have sources of income that come in no matter what, right? If you're Disney and you own ESPN, cable providers are paying you to carry ESPN every month, no matter what. If you're a writer on a Disney show, there is no alternative. Well, and
1: two of the members of the AMPTP8 aren't even in the entertainment business for profit. (laughs) (laughs) So that's tough when you're, you know, starving at home with your kids trying to feed them and the studio you're up against is making billions of dollars selling toilet paper on the internet and
0: doesn't even care about your show. Or makes more money every month or probably every week from selling iPhones than they make from entertainment. This episode is brought to you
1: by Netflix presenting The Crown as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate.
0: (laughs) Thomas's, huzzah, a toast to breakfast.
1: I want to give a little sense of where we go next from here, and then we'll talk about some of the lasting impact. So. Right now, they have to ratify this deal. They have to present it to the guild and have the membership vote on it during the end at the end of the last strike ninety four percent of the writers who voted voted yes on the deal, although interestingly like not like not even a majority of writers voted <laughs> to, in that in that ratification deal, maybe they thought it would pass overwhelmingly so there's a very, very low chance this will, this will be rejected. It's going to pass. Then the studios concurrently can go to SAG-AFTRA and they can start negotiating there. I think that's going to go pretty quickly. I think a lot of these issues that took so long on the writer's side will be used as templates for the actors, including the AI issue, which I think the studios are willing to concede a lot there. They did maintain the right to experiment a little in the writer's deal. It wasn't a full capitulation. They still can't experiment. But I think with the actors, there is such a strong sense that an actor should own his or her image. And the legal framework there is supportive of that. So I think they're going to just use the template. The real issue there is that the actors are asking for double the wage increases that the writers even asked for. They're asking for 11% wage increases for inflation. And there's a couple of other issues that they they have. How long do you think this SAG negotiation is going to go? I'm
0: with you. I think it'll be pretty quick. Um, partially because the, the initial negotiation with SAG was more of a real negotiation than the re- negotiation between the, the the writers and the studios. So they've already identified some areas where they can compromise. I don't think, they weren't close to a deal, but they weren't as far apart as the studios and, and the writers once were. I also think once you see the writers cut a deal, to your point, it like creates a lot of baseline for it, and it just saps a lot of the momentum from the the movement, because the writers had been out there early, they'd been so vocal. And I can't predict if that means it's two weeks, a month, a month and a half, whatever that is. But I certainly don't think we're looking at this actor strike is going to you know, drag into 2024.
1: Yeah, I think Thanksgiving, around Thanksgiving, maybe a little after sounds about right to me based on the calculations on how long things take to get ratified and ramped up. The sense that I feel with the actors is that the writers were the ones to fight the fight. And they will fight and they'll get the things they want, but they're not going to hold up the entire industry over a small issue. I get the sense that these actors want this to be done.
0: Yeah. Well, and you brought up AI. The studios and the actors had agreed on a bunch of the points around AI. They hadn't had complete agreement on everything, but they'd already resolved a lot. I think. And you, you bring up the, the salary increases that the actors want. That's a very big deal. Obviously, most strikes are about wages and certain protections. But at a certain point, it becomes, you want 12, I want, I say four, like we're going to meet at seven or eight or nine or whatever the number ends up being.
1: And the Writers Guild just negotiates in a different way. I mean, they're just like hyper aggressive, and they you know walk out of the room and they go back after people think that they're done, and then they ask for more. Like you know, we don't we haven't had an example of SAG being on strike since 1980, but I I just don't think it's gonna gonna go there. Um, All right, so let's get to the question that I asked in my newsletter last night: Can we all be friends now? And that's a more complicated issue. I think now than it has been in previous strikes. A couple reasons for that. First of all, the tenor of this strike was so nasty. I mean, I remember being around in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, two thousand seven. It was not this way. I mean, yes, there was the rhetoric and there were people, you know, issuing statements and you know giving, you know, posting blog posts and things like that. But there were not the nonstop. Villainization of the CEOs on social media, the social media element caused this to get ratcheted up five, ten notches. And I don't know that this just goes away. Do you think that now, if this is all resolved, everybody's friends again, they turned off the pressure, that the studios are going to be, like, oh, ok. it was it was fine that you called me a villainous robber baron asshole for five months. We're just going to work with
0: you now, and it's going to be cool. I am skeptical. <laughs> That there's going to be this lasting impact on the relationship, maybe amnesia.
1: Everyone's like, "We're back."
0: Yeah, I mean, look, I've gotten. I'm sure you've gotten these messages too about, oh, the executives are like following what people are saying on Twitter, and they'll, they'll, you know, they'll oh, they remember. definitely are. Are you kidding? Yeah. Who would? No, I'm sure they are. They, David who sure who
1: is like, you know, the memes of him and the sunglasses at the commencement
0: speech, like he's looking at those. I'm sure that they paid attention to it, and I'm sure that if there is a moment, you know, if you've got a a bubble show, and there's a screenwriter that was really nasty and outspoken, like, maybe it hurts their chances. Maybe. No, I'm not talking about the powerful people. Like, ultimately,
1: these executives need to be in business with the top creators. I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about the middle class and sort of up-and-coming or maybe a little has-been writer who spent the entire strike on Twitter trashing the executives. Yeah,
0: but the thing to remember, I hear you. If you're ta- but Bob Iger is not getting involved in he isn't. the staffing of individual shows. The other thing to keep in mind is if you have a good idea, people are going to want to buy it. So That is true. Success heals all wounds.
1: It, yeah, it's just there is, you know, you know how this works. There's a lot of great writers and the people who get staffed typically have some kind of relationship or They have an in or they wrote something that appeals to the particular showrunner. This whole noise around the strike could be a factor. And let's not let's also keep in mind the market has changed in these five months. Even before the strike started in May, the bubble had burst on peak TV and a big correction was coming. But now, five months later when all these companies are reeling and trying to fix their stock price and spend less and increase profitability, we're headed for a big market correction in the amount of content that's produced. So that is ultimately going to translate into jobs that are lost.
0: Yeah. And I got into this a little bit in my newsletter where I've heard a lot from executives and representatives and even some writers who recognize that some of the gains that the writers received could actually hurt them or hurt certain people, I should say, in the long run. Because to your point, studios are cutting back. All of these different things they get in their contract make shows more expensive. It will right. further suppress the amount of product that gets made. And ultimately, it will
1: mean smaller number of people making more money, but the
0: overall divvying up of the pie will go to fewer people. Yes, there will be fewer slices if you want to continue the metaphor. But look, there are always peaks and valleys in production and you have a lot of smart people who are convinced that the correction is not going to be quite as severe as people say. And one of the other things that could happen is There could be a very vibrant market for what's called a spec script or something that's written without any deal that just gets sold. And if you have something that people really like, there can still be a bidding war and it can still work for people. And this there will still be opportunities, right? That's the funky thing about working in Hollywood is that it's not a place where you come for stability. True. I know.
1: This whole conversation around like the middle class writer and a steady job, like it's never been that. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to do this for a living. And yes, the hurdles are harder. These days, when the shows are six episodes, and you have to put together three jobs in a year to make what you could have made on a twenty-two episode sitcom, but it's uh, it's always been hard. All right, who won the strike?
0: <laughs> <laughs> you save that for the very end. Yes. Am I picking an individual or am I picking I don't know. a side? I mean, listen. You made a
1: point, which is these gains were not offered on May first. Whatever they are, we when we find out what they are, they're almost certainly going to be a lot better than what was offered on May first. So then the calculation is: Was this worth it? Was the five month shutdown worth what they got? That is the ultimate question. Yeah, I tend to think that
0: the writers won. You're going. You're saying it. You've called it. I mean, look, we got to see the particulars, but I yeah, I think there were a lot. I think there were a lot of things that they wanted that people yeah. wrote off, that they got some version of. And they chose to do a deal right before I think they might have lost some leverage, right? Like the studios, they got to a point in late August, early September, where the studios really wanted to do a deal. They were tired of this thing being over, and the cracks in the in the solidarity had only just started to show a little bit. And the guild was smart to know, okay, now's the time, let's go do it, and and we'll get it done.
1: Yeah. Whether they brought in David Young, the Exiled former negotiator, or whether they realized on their own that this was the moment to do it, and that their own guild was turning, the public was about to turn, and the studios were ready to move on to sag. They did it it seems at the right time
0: okay, so you're you're in agreement,
1: I think so, until we see the numbers i'm ready I'm ready to give it to the writers right now. Can I give the really lame answer? Oh, uh, it's too soon to tell no. Everyone fucking won. This thing's over. Oh, you and I won because we don't have to think about this. (laughs) Although you do. uh, You have to write about it today, probably. So we will let you go. Thank you, Lucas. Thanks, Matt. All right. We're back with the call sheet. Craig, I forget. Are you a Amazon Prime member? I am. If you consider it okay to be using your parents' login. I do not. You're a married man. Get your own Prime.
0: You know, my mom actually texted me that. My mom said, you're married now. You need to get your own Prime. Yeah,
1: oh no, we talked about this on the show. I forgot, we've talked about this. So as an Amazon Prime quasi member, you get Amazon Prime Video, which has, until now, has been a free trove of commercial-free content that you can watch uh, whenever you'd like. And Amazon announced this past week that uh, that's ending. They're adding advertising to Amazon Prime Video. Unless you want to pay $3 a month to get rid of the ads.
0: Right. And this is unique because the ad-included version is usually something that you can pay less for. But in this situation, you are paying the same price you currently pay to now see ads and you have to pay more to remove the ads.
1: Well, but but for the vast majority of people who get Prime Video, it's an add-on to the service they actually want, which is the delivery service that Prime provides. So Amazon is in this weird spot where the video service they give you is sort of an add-on and a bonus. And now they're going to go back to people and say, yeah, yeah, that thing that you probably don't watch, but we provide you for free anyways, you're going to have to pay $3 a month if you want to continue getting that unless you're willing to get ads along with it. I don't think that many people are going to select that tier. My prediction is that the number of people who go into the Amazon Prime Video paid tier is going to be Very small, but that actually might be the point of what Amazon is doing. So far, we have seen when these services launch advertising tiers, they actually end up making more money off of these customers via ads than they did via just a subscription fee. So, when Amazon doesn't have a subscription fee for Prime Video, when it's included with Prime, it makes sense that they would push people to pay more if they want no ads, but just monetize the crap out of them via ads on these shows that they feel that they're getting for free anyways.
0: So it really does feel like the customer does not win in this battle. This is a, this is a well, true win here for Amazon.
1: Prime video has been the biggest bargain of the century if you think about it, because you're not paying anything beyond your prime price, which most people consider a bargain because they get free shipping. And you're just getting these shows that other services are charging $10, 15 $20 a month for. So yeah, I mean, that bargain is ending and the customer does lose there. But to be honest, most people don't care about a little bit of advertising along with the content. And on Amazon, which is not, I'm willing to bet, the primary video service for most people. It's not like if you, you know, they did this to Netflix. So if it's ads on Amazon, kind of so what? Unless you're a super user and you're willing to pay the $3 or you just don't care.
0: Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. Most people who are watching video on Amazon Prime video is for football, which already has ads.
1: Or the Terminal List or Jack Ryan, which whatever, you know, you can now suck it up and take some ads. So you will not be upgrading.
0: No. I guess you have to
1: to consult with your mom.
0: I have to consult my mom, consult my wife, but I will see there are not a lot of shows on prime that I, I I think I'm willing to pay for without ads right now. I will definitely have my own account though
1: very soon if my yeah. my parents have anything to say about it. Debate that. you know, the summer I turned pretty like you got to be you got to watch that. I don't know if that's moving the needle for me. We'll see <laughs> uh, all right. That's the show for today. Want to thank my guest Lucas Shaw. I want to thank producer Craig Holerback, our editor Jesse Lopez, and I want to thank you. We will see you later this week.